Hey guys, this is Phil and this is the Vision Podcast. Hey, just really excited to bring this message to you today because I know it's going to affect your life because God's Word always changes things. You know, it's the only book that reads us and I'm so thankful for that. So I know you're going to enjoy this. So just set your heart to hear from heaven today and enjoy the podcast. You know, it's so interesting that April mentioned Valentine's Day because something that the father has wanted to do from the very beginning has been to spend time with his kids and to be close to his kids. From the very beginning, you look at creation, you look at when Adam and Eve were in the garden and what did God do every day in the garden? He came and he walked with them, didn't he? In the cool of the day, he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, he fellowship with them every day. Oh, wow, I get to use. Here, let me give you the, the old. Dude, I can't even read this. You got the font so small. Yeah, I think I'll have to go with my phone still. But anyway, <laughs> you know, yeah. How many of you know that large print means different things to different people? But anyway, sorry. Okay, I'm moving on. So, so here God walks with Adam and Eve in the garden. Then what happens? They sin. And then what happened after sin took place in the garden? Then suddenly they're, they're no longer allowed. They can't walk with God anymore. Why? Because God can't be present where sin is in their life. But God wanted to be close to his children so bad. So what did he do? He delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. They came out of Egypt. And what did he want to do with them when he brought them out of Egypt? His number one goal was to bring them to Mount Sinai, right? Why? Because he wanted to bring his children to himself. And what happened on Mount Sinai? Moses was the only one that came up. The rest of his kids were too scared. They said, no, no, no. No, you talk to God for us. Imagine if you had a child of your own that said, no, you go talk to mom. I'm not talking to mom. You go talk to mom. That feels, that doesn't make you as a parent feel like you have a close relationship with your children when they're not willing to talk to you, right? Well, this is what God was experiencing. He was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What do you mean you won't come up the mountain? And they said, no, no, Moses, you go. You tell us. And so what did God do? God gave Moses a plan for a tabernacle. And he gave him a materials list. And he told him, this is how you're supposed to build the tabernacle. This is how I want it built. And why? What was the purpose of the tabernacle? It's that God wants to live and dwell among his family. God wants to be close to his children. He wants to be close to you and I right now. So I want to look at things that have to do with the tabernacle. All right. Are you with me? So in Exodus 25 verse 8, this is what the Lord said. Exodus 25 verse 8. He said, and let them make me a sanctuary that I can dwell among them. Make me a sanctuary that I can dwell among them. And so that's the purpose of the tabernacle is that God wanted to dwell among his people. And so he also, there's another purpose to the tabernacle though. It's so that we know how to come into the presence of God. This is another purpose of the tabernacle. And so I'm excited about this because I, this is something that God has, I've just been chewing on this last week 
was I've been studying the tabernacle, all the different furnishings in the tabernacle, and I've learned some things that are so interesting because God does everything with specifics. Everything that God does is intentional, right? Can I get an amen on that? Okay, so everything in the tabernacle, there is so much about it that has to do with Jesus. Remember Jesus said to the, to the Sanhedrin, he said, look, he said, you guys study the scriptures, you go over the scriptures, and you don't even realize that everything in scripture points to me. And everything in the tabernacle points to Jesus. I mean, even the fabric and the colors that were used, and even the pillars, the 60 pillars that went all the way around the tabernacle, the caps of the pillars, the base of the pillar, even the rope that came down and and attached to the nail that stuck half in the ground, half out of the ground. There is so much there. So I can't go through all of it, but what I am going to do is give you some synopsis uh, situations that are really going to help you the way that they help me. And so I'm excited about it. So when you first look at the tabernacle, there's that gate that everybody goes through to get inside the outer courts, right? And that gate is called the way. Where have you heard that before? Jesus said, I am the way. Interestingly, the door that goes in to the holy place is also called the truth. Why? Because what's in the tabernacle reveals truth. And then the veil, the curtain that separates the, the, uh, <clears throat> the holy place from the holy of holies is called the life. Why? Because the glory of God was in the holy of holies. True life. And so isn't it interesting because when Jesus said this, when he said in that scripture in John 14 verse 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, this is Jesus talking to the Jews, and the Jews know exactly, they understand exactly what he's talking about. Emphasis. They know exactly what Jesus is talking about, that he is talking about the tabernacle, that no one comes to the Father except through Jesus, that Jesus would become that door. Isn't that good? And so let's look at a couple of the furnishings here. Whenever you come in through that first gate, what's the very first furnishing that you see? It's, It's the altar of sacrifice, right? They call it the brazen altar because it was made out of brass. Brass is heat resistant, fire resistant, right? And so, but what happens on this altar is the sacrificial lamb is offered there. Why? For sin. What was Jesus called? What did John the Baptist called Jesus. He called him, behold, the Lamb of God who was slain for the world. It hasn't even happened yet. Jesus hasn't gone to the cross. He hasn't died on the cross. But John, by the Spirit of God, knew who he was. He said, behold, the Lamb of God. He mentions it twice in two different verses. John the Baptist during the baptism. But then in Revelation, you remember there was a book that nobody could open because it was sealed. And John began to cry because nobody could break the seals. But then he said, but then a man stood before the book and he looked like a lamb that had been slain. Who is this? This is Jesus, the lamb who was slain. And he was able to break the seal and open the book. Yeah, this is gonna be fun with my phone. So, all right. 
So I want to read to you out of 1 Peter. If you have your Bible, turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Say this out loud. I am getting something out of this message. Yeah, it's going to be good. Oh, this is complicated. I don't know how this goes on here. Put it back under here. All right. I'll continue with my phone. 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at verse 19. It says that this is how we were redeemed. This is Peter speaking. And he says, with the precious blood of Christ. With the precious, precious blood of Christ. As a lamb without blemish and without spot. So Jesus became the final sacrifice. Right all the way up to Jesus, they had to sacrifice animals. Every time somebody sinned, you had to, the sacrifice had to be made. Blood had to be shed to cover that sin, right? So now Jesus dies on the cross. He became the lamb of God that was slain. And so now he pays one price for all eternity. Nobody ever has to pay that price again. Jesus finished the work. And so that's good news for you and I because Jesus has already done everything he's going to do for you. Nicole's uh, grandmother, Grandma Reed, her husband was a home builder. And he had a company where he developed a lot of Sepulpa, Oklahoma. If you've ever been to Sepulpa, Oklahoma, you may, if you drive through any neighborhoods, you'd probably see some of his homes. And so he developed all of these homes. Well, when he got into his late 50s, he developed cancer. And he really felt like he was going to die. And so he set his wife up for the rest of her life. And Grandma Reed never lacked for anything. She never had to work again. Why? He had done all the work for her and taken care of her. This is what Jesus has done for you and I. He's paid the price. He supplied everything. And so at this altar of sacrifice, that's one side of it. The other side of it is this, is that that altar of sacrifice is a place of death for you and I. This is a place where you and I get to die. And let me, let me read to you out of Galatians chapter 2. Familiar verse in verse 20. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ now lives in me. When you make that decision to get born again, to follow Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you push all the chips to the center of the table and say, yeah, I am all in. I am all in, God. Then guess what? Now you have been crucified with him. So it's no longer you living, it's Christ living on the inside of you. I'll come back to that. Um, But okay, just thinking I want to write something. Sorry. All right. So the first thing that we experience when we were born again is the cross. What did Jesus say? Jesus said this in Matthew 16, verse 24. He said, if any of you desires to come after me, then you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. So you can't follow him. We can't follow him until we've denied ourselves, and then we've taken up our cross. Those are the two things that have to happen. What are you talking about, Phil? Deny myself. That means that I let go of my desires, my will, my plans, and I take up his. When I take up my cross, that means I'm dying to self. 
I'm dying to my will, dying to what I want to do, and I'm taking up my cross following after him. Amen? So that's the altar of sacrifice. The next furnishing that you come into when you come into that, and by the way, and if you've never walked through the tabernacle in, um, in Eureka Springs, Arkansas, Arkansas, they have built a, a, a tabernacle there, and it's to scale. And it's really cool. If you've never been, you can walk through it. Now, that's the closest one. Or you can go over to Israel out in the wilderness. They have one built to scale if you want to go out there. So the laver, and I'm sure there's probably more, but the laver is the next furnishing. The laver is interesting. They call it the, and it's because it's a, it's a base with a big basin on top. And this is where the priests would wash their hands and their feet before they would walk into the, you know, the holy place. Before they could go in, they had to wash their hands and their feet. And so what does this represent for us? This represents baptism, right? At the, at the other, at the altar, the brazen altar, this is where death occurs. Now at the laver, this is where burial happens. How many of you know it, it's important to die? But it's also important to bury the old man. Why? He's gone. He's dead. When you get baptized in water and you come up out of the water, guess what? That old person stayed in there. I talked to a guy. He said, I don't know if I was, if I was baptized right. I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, they just kind of put me under and I, I wasn't sure what was going on. And, uh, and I said, well, well, talk to me about it. I said, you know, did the old man stay in there? And he goes, oh, yeah, I have never been the same. And I said, well, I, I think you did it pretty well. Because that was the idea. That was the goal, you know. We spent some, my daughter's getting ready to get married. Becca, she's going to be getting married here at the end of March. Yeah. It's my, okay. Yeah, excited for you. We are, we are so pumped. Josh was here yesterday. We had, they had the, what did you have yesterday? We had the shower. Yeah, the bridal shower. That was cool. We were there. But anyway, she's going to get married, right? And so that's going to happen March, end of March, March 31st, right? Okay, so, huh? Okay, sorry. I need to go on here. All right. So why did I bring up the wedding? Baptism. New person. And my notes are gone, and oh my word! Okay, the brass laver. Let me let me come back. Okay, I'm coming back to the laver. Sorry, guys. Maybe we can cut this out. So, so the brass laver. Interesting. The brass laver is made out all everything that that they used to build the tabernacle was brought. Maybe it'll come back to me. Hopefully. Um, was brought from the people, from the Israelites. This, most, much of this is stuff that they brought from Egypt. You remember, they asked for all these different things, gold and silver, and they basically plundered the Egyptians. They brought all that out into the wilderness, right? And so the laver was made out of these brass pieces that the women used for mirrors. Isn't that interesting? And so the mirrors that were used, the word of God shows us who we were, but now... It shows us who he made us to be. Whew. So when you're baptized and you come up out of that water, who, we, who you were stayed in there. Oh, I know what it was. 
So I was talking about that guy that wondered if he was baptized right. So Becca's getting ready to get married when, uh, so I've done weddings and I remember I did a wedding one time and came home and Becca asked me, so how'd the wedding go? And I said, well, they're married. Because sometimes the emphasis is on so much else. The goal is to what? Thank you. Okay. There you go. All right. We're moving on. Yeah. All right. So this is a beautiful picture of a man's salvation and then his transformation. So we turn from the laver and we look at the front door, the entrance to the tabernacle. And this is interesting because holding up that entrance, there's five pillars that hold up that entrance. What does that represent? Well, in Ephesians chapter 4, why don't you turn over there and we can read this together. Ephesians 4 and look at verse 11. It's good stuff. I told you God would remind me. Thank you, Lord. This is good too because these are not even my updated notes. It's all good. Ephesians 4, look at verse 11. It says, and he himself gave some to be apostles, evangelists, I'm sorry, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. These five offices are what these pillars represent. So interesting, the thumb would be the apostle because the thumb can touch all of the fingers. It's been in every aspect of ministry as the apostle. The prophet is the pointer finger, right? That's the guy that says, or the lady that says, thus saith the Lord, right? And shares the gospel. The middle finger, the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, it's the longest finger on the hand. It's the one that reaches out. The ring finger is the gentle finger, the pastor, right? So pray for me, all right? And then the pinky is the teacher. Why? It's the smallest finger, and it's the one that we used to dig out the truths, it's where all the other fingers can't reach, right? Isn't that cool? Yeah, I thought that was, I thought that was pretty cool. And so, yeah, you can go back and listen to it. But <laughs> I don't want to say all that again. But, but here's the results. Every one of these offices, this is what it produces in our lives as the church, right? Number one, it produces maturity. We're growing in God. Number two, it establishes us in our faith. It's important for us to have established faith. This is the seed that goes into good ground. It goes down deep where the birds can't get to it and it comes up and produces, amen? And then so you're rooted and grounded is number three. Number four, that we have freedom from deception. Man, the, nothing will reveal deception more than the light of the word of God that's been illuminated in our heart through hearing the gospel preached and, and people who preach the Bible. Number five, the ability to speak the truth in love. <laughs> and then number six, constant growth. Number seven, harmony. So once you experience Jesus, his love and his baptism, then that changes your life and your heart. Then you're ready to enter the holy place. Here's the challenge is many Christians ne never make it past the labor. Some don't even make it past the altar of sacrifice. They realize who Jesus is, they make him Lord of their life, but they never go past the altar of sacrifice. Or they get to the laver, they're baptized, but they don't enter into the holy place. Man, Psalm 63, verse 1 says this. It says, O God, you are my God. Early 
will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. And I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. In the book of James, it talks about us drawing near to God. He said, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. We're the ones that do the drawing first. And God will accept you. He'll never turn you away. I don't know if I like hanging out with God so much because, you know, he shows me things I need to fix in my life. Well, that's what a good father does. Why? Because he wants you to, to be better, to live better. Such a good God. Such a good God. So then when you come into the tabernacle, when you look to the right against the wall, there's the table of showbread. And in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, this is something that Jesus said. And he was quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8 when he said it. He said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. See, every Sabbath they put um, six stacks on each side of the table of fresh baked cakes on there. And they stack them on top of each other. And they did that every Sabbath so that it's fresh I don't, know if, I don't know about you, but when I lived in Tulsa and I used to drive down by the Rainbow Bread Factory, oh man, I mean, it smelled so good. They had a little store, you know, and it was a dangerous place. But that smell just would permeate. Well, Jesus, what is he called? He's called the bread of life. Bethlehem was called the house of bread. And so to the house of bread came the bread of life, right? And Jesus, before his name was Jesus, he was called the Word of God. The Word is that bread. It's the bread that we eat that fills us up, that leaves us wanting more, but yet we're satisfied because of how it fills us. That's important for us as Christians to have. We can't just get saved, we can't just be baptized. We now have to get into the word and allow the word to transform our life because it's the only book when you read it, it reads you. And then when it reads you, it shows you the things that you can change so that you can produce more for God. That's the whole goal of this is for you and I to produce more for him, right? Thank you, Lord. So, and those who eat are filled. Revelation is what produces that satisfaction. When you read the word, it, man, revelation begins to flow. And that's what satisfies you. But then also another thing happens. Persecution comes. Why does it come? For the word's sake. When you begin to live by the word, persecution's going to come. I worked a job one time, and because of the way I would eat, they would scrutinize my lunch every day. And it got kind of old. I felt like I was being persecuted because I didn't eat the way they wanted me to eat. Persecution comes. Maybe that's a bad example. But let me read to you out of 1 Peter 4. In verse 14, it says, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. Wow. When you're persecuted, that means you're blessed. Isn't that good news? Blessed are you for the spirit of the glory of God rests upon you. Man, I, I don't know about you, but I don't mind taking persecution so much if his glory is going to rest upon me. 
Persecution, it will lead you into a place of worship. That's what persecution does. So then, if you turn around from the table of showbread and you look, you'll see a candle, a lampstand with lamps on it. And there's seven on there. And so this is the only light in the tabernacle. It's the only illumination. What does that represent? It represents evangelism. What did Jesus say? He said, who takes a light and sticks it under a bushel? He said, no, you hold it out so that it illuminates the whole room. See, when you read the word of God, the bread of life, it illuminates your heart so that it gets inside of you so that it can begin to illuminate other people. So that when the toothpaste gets squeezed, what comes out of you is not a curse word. What comes out of you is the word of God, is light. And light shed in darkness is a good thing. It'll change other people's lives, but it also reveals things in our own life. Light is always a good thing because it shows things for what it really is. I remember a pastor, a friend of mine who uh, started pastoring a church and he had taken over a club building. They bought this building that used to be a club. And the only thing that they ever saw in there were when the lights were on and it was all dark. And I remember, he said, I remember when they turned the fluorescence on for the first time and we all went, ooh. Yeah, showed the place for what it really was. So when we belong to him, we're illuminated by the word and that's what brings revelation. The illumination of the word. And this is the other piece of that is the oil of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who is the power and the teacher, he causes the word to shine in you so then it'll come out of you. Glory to God. So then, somewhere in front of the veil, the curtain that separates the holy place from the holy of holies, there's the altar of incense. They said it's in front of that. The Bible refers to it as being in front of that curtain there. And the altar of incense was the place where the priests would burn incense night and day. They were continually offering incense on this altar of incense. And what does that represent for us? So prayer could be incense that goes up. Worship and praise and worship could be incense that goes up. Prayer, uh, um, sorry, giving can be incense that goes up. Well, Phil, where do you get that from? From Acts chapter 10. Glad you asked. Remember a guy by the name of Cornelius? In verse 31, he says, he told me, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. And your gifts to the poor have been noticed by God. Sounds like they're coming up so that God sees them, right? So the priests offered this daily. What about worship? What about praise and worship? Let me read that to you in Psalms 96 verse 9. It says, Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Psalm 34 8 says this. It says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. See, once you taste him, taste his presence, you want more. I think some people don't want more because they actually haven't had an encounter yet. They really haven't experienced the true him because if you had, you would never want anything else. Why? It's like the pearl of great price. You're like, oh, I want to sell everything that I have and I just want that. 
That's what I want. Because when we realize who he is, and we realize how good he is, and we realize we don't need anything else but him in our life. He's everything. Wow. <clears throat> and then we come to the veil. Interesting thing about the veil. The veil, uh, the Bible talks about how it's, it's four inches thick. My word. That's, that's, a, that's a lot of fabric. I've never seen a veil four inches thick. I don't know about you. You know, I've seen the blackouts, and I think that's as thick as I've seen. But if you imagine a four-inch thick. So what is the purpose of the veil in the tabernacle? What does this do? It separates, right, the holy place from the holy of holies, but it conceals God's presence. Why? Because sin cannot come into God's presence. God designed this in such a way that he would protect all of his children and still be able to be there among them. But what happened when Jesus died on the cross, it says when he gave up his spirit, when he said it is finished, which is a significant phrase, he says it is finished, he releases his spirit, and then there's this great earthquake, so much so that rocks crack, they split in two, and then it says that the temple, it specifically says, this four inch thick curtain rips from top to bottom all the way. Why is that significant? Because when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, there, then a barrier came between God and us. See, you, you don't have to sin. You were born into it. When Adam and Eve sinned, then suddenly the earth came under a curse. And so anyone that's born into the planet beyond that, you're born into a nature, a culture of sin. It's only a matter of time before you're going to rebel. We're going to sin in some way. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is why Jesus had to come. But when this curtain, and so because of that, there was this barrier between us and God. And so when Jesus dies on the cross and this curtain is ripped literally in two, suddenly the Holy of Holies is exposed. Why? Because Jesus' blood was enough so that you and I could enter the holy of holies and be with him. Oh, man. Thank you, God. Uh, we're getting ready to get excited in here. I can feel it. I can feel it. I mean, think about it. The priest could only go in there once a year. That was why the priests had to wash their hands and their feet every time. Every time they went into the holy place. Because otherwise they would have died. And then all these prerequisites, all these things that had to happen in order for the priest to come in once a year. Try having a relationship with someone once a year, man. So then what happens? You come into the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies. So this is the place where we become one with our Father. This is the place where intimacy begins. This is the place where we now understand Psalm 4610, be still and know I am God. He is God. Whew. Psalm 91 verse 1 says this, that he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge, my fortress, my God. In him will I trust See, the Holy of Holies is this secret 
place of the Most High. This is the place where words become inadequate. That's why we should never be afraid when there's moments that God moves in this house and there's nothing going on. I feel I just got to fill the dead space. I got to fill the dead space. No, you don't. Be still. Be still. Do you know one of my greatest toils that I struggle with when I get in my prayer closet and I, and I get down on my knees to pray? My greatest struggle is the toil that I go through initially as I'm praying. Because I feel like I'm just repeating myself. I feel like, God, I've thanked you so much and I don't know what I could possibly thank you for that I haven't already thanked you for. You know, and sometimes I feel like I'm working through this toil of of seeking God and praying to get to a place where I finally am able to focus in and give God 100% of my attention and not my words. And that's when he speaks to me. And I wish I didn't have to go through this front part. But what is that? I've got all this other stuff going on. And see, when we come in here and we worship on Sunday, we, all of you have stuff going on. You've got a lot of stuff going on. All of you do. Some of you more than you should. Some of you could use some more stuff, share some load, you know. I'm teasing. But, I'm, but we've all got stuff is my point. And what do we need to do? We have to purposely set aside our stuff And say, God, I'm just here to get still before you and allow you to speak. Don't let anything get in the way, God. Speak to my heart. Talk to me. I'm giving this time to you. I I got nothing else to do right now. And even if I did, you're more important. And I tell you what, if my, uh, if my daughter or my son called me or my wife called me and said, Dad, I need to talk to you right now. I would lay everything else down. I don't care what it is. It's not more important than hearing what they have to say at that moment. And I'm just an earthly dad. God is Father. And I'm telling you, what you've got going on and the things that concern your life are a huge deal to him. Wow. So let's, uh, let's review. So at the gate, we were reconciled, right? At the altar sacrifice, we were redeemed. At the labor, we were sanctified. At the lampstand, we were illuminated. Rebecca, come on, help me. At the table of showbread, we were satisfied. At the altar of incense, that's where we exalt him. We worship him. We praise him. We, we pray. You know, this will be, be another thing that helps. This helps me in prayer too. When I come to pray, that I don't have anything on my agenda, on my list to bring him. 
You know, there's a time for that. But I don't want to be that college student that calls, the only time I call my dad from school is when I need money. Or I need something, you know. In the Holy of Holies, we touch him. And when we touch him, this is what we experience. Listen to this, Psalm 42, verse 7. Deep calling unto deep. And the noise of the waterfalls, all your waves and billows have gone over me. See, when deep calls to deep, his waves fall over me. And he clothes me with the waves of his presence and his glory. Do you know why that veil was ripped in two? It was so that you could come boldly into the throne room and find grace to help. It was so you and I could cast off shame. Well, Phil, you don't understand. I don't feel worthy or, or you don't understand. I've sinned again. Then you have an advocate with the Father. His name is Jesus. And when Jesus declares you not guilty, he has declared you at the same time righteous where you can run right through that veil and just hug your father. I mean, you can just wrap your arms around him and say, thank you. Thank you, Dad. Thank you. father so think about this in closing because I got to land the plane since Jesus has died on the cross when you make the decision to make him Lord of your life you don't need a tabernacle anymore you don't need a temple why because your body has now become the temple of the Holy Spirit you're the one that he lives in. See, let me, let me say it this way. See, if you ever... No, I want to say this first. Where is it? I have a tissue. we've gone from God above to God with us to God in us. See the progression? Man, could you imagine living in the Old Testament where God was just way up here and he was some, some being to be afraid of to Jesus walking the earth? But Jesus said he was limited by the human body. This is why he said, I'm going to send you another comforter. Jesus was the first comforter. But he said, no, I'm going to send you another one because I'm restricted to this body. And believe me, you want me to go away so that he will come. And so Jesus ascended on high and here comes Holy Spirit with the power for you and I to live the way that we should. 
All right. Sorry, one, a couple last things. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 is where I, that scripture is where Paul says, your body is the temple. Do you not know that you are, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And then I want to read to you in Ephesians chapter two. I read the scripture the other day and went, wow, God, that is so good. Ephesians two, look at verse 19. It says, so now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together you are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The cornerstone is Jesus Christ himself. Woo! We are carefully joined together in him because a holy, sorry, we are carefully joined together in him becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Wow, through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of his dwelling where God lives by his spirit. See, God wanted more than anything to be with you. He wants to fellowship with you individually, personally, intimately. He wants to be with each person. He wants to know you. He wants to know who you are on the inside. And too many Christians are so nervous about God. I I don't know. I don't want to, you know, he knows, you know, I don't want him to know about, like you can kind of hide something from God. He knows everything. You can't hide anything from him. So you might as well just go out in front of him and just be all out in the open and say, God, this is me. This is the mess that I'm asking you to fix. I'm asking your help. I'm asking you to help me with this. And he does. But we first have to know that God wants us to come into fellowship with him. He wants us to spend time in the closet with him, in our prayer space, on our knees. We, we need to learn how to take time to be still. We need to not get nervous when worship seems like it's sitting still. Somebody needs to do something. Somebody needs to get up and say something. Well, our job is not to manage the presence of God. Is it? How do your friends feel when you manage them? Let me, let me say it this way. What, what if you had somebody that was coming to you and they were trying to be your friend and they were reaching out to you? And have you, have you ever had a person do that and, you, and you've kinda, you're kind of like, I'm not sure I want to be friends with you. And so you've kept them at arm's length and then later, you, were, you remembered it long after you guys are gone or moved or not, not even together anymore, and, and you regret that you didn't let them be your friend. Well, that's what the children of Israel were doing with God. They were like this. And even today, many Jews are still like this. They want to be, rebuild the temple. What does that mean? That that means animal sacrifices are going to start again. Man, 
And all this time, God wants to be with us. Wow. Would you stand up with me this morning? I just want to pray for you.